Welcome to another episode of Cares Vet Med. I'm Tracy Mahoney, and in this episode, we're going to turn up the heat. We're going to talk about our patient's thermoregulation process, and more importantly, perianesthetic hypothermia. And the incidences of perianesthetic hypothermia have been reported in upwards of 90% in both human and animal patients. So this is an adverse effect that we should be expecting, and we need to make sure that we have interventions included as part of our anesthetic protocol for each patient. Now, before we talk about the intervention options, let's review some of the science that influences the numbers we see on the thermometer. Now, one of the main ways that we have heat production within our body is via metabolism. So we have an aerobic metabolism process that relies on oxygen to create energy from carbohydrates. Now, our hypothalamus is our body's thermostat because it regulates our metabolism as well as other functions such as vasoconstriction and vasodilation. Now, the hypothalamus can uh, trigger release of thyroid hormones as well as catecholamines, which will increase our metabolic rate. So any process in the body that increases our metabolic rate is going to increase heat production. Shivering is another effective mechanism for restoring thermal balance uh, because it, are, it will increase our metabolic rate two to three times. Now, the important thing to know about shivering, however, is that it also increases our oxygen and glucose demand. So in recovery, if we have patients that are sedate and not breathing um, enough on their own, uh, they may have to uh, rely on oxygen supplementation because their oxygen saturation will be uh, low because their um, body's demand for oxygen and the respiratory rate that they are uh, producing because of maybe some sedatives still on board or anesthetic agents that are still weaning out of their system. If they're hypoventilating and their respiratory rate is depressed, uh, they're going to need oxygen support. The other um, functions, like I mentioned for the hypothalamus, so vasoconstriction, more specifically peripheral vasoconstriction, is going to be an effective mechanism for reducing our heat losses, whereas peripheral vasodilation is going to be an effective mechanism for cooling. And it's important to note that our geriatric patients, while they can still maintain uh, normal thermoregulation, they do have a decreased ability to control that. So there is going to be a further delay in their responses to either hypo or hyperthermia. Now the body can be broken up into two regions. We have our periphery and we have our core. So when we talk about our core body temperature, we're talking about perfusion and circulating temperature of um, all of our vital organs. So our brain, we've got in our chest, we've got our heart and our lungs. In our abdomen, we've got our GI tract, our kidney, our liver, our pancreas, etc. Now, our definition of hypothermia is going to be um, a core body, uh, body temperature that's less than 99.9 degrees. So normal temperature for our dogs is 99.5, you know, 99.9 to 102.5 for dogs. And then cats is about 100 to 103 degrees Fahrenheit. So mild hypothermia is going to be anything from 98 to 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Moderate hypothermia would be 96 to 98 degrees Fahrenheit. Severe hypothermia would be 92 to 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And then anything less than 92 degrees Fahrenheit would be considered to be critical hypothermia. And we'll talk about um, adverse effects of hypothermia in our patients a little bit later on in the episode. 
Um, now, take a moment and just think about your patients and where they generally come out of anesthesia and where they fall. Are they moderately hypothermic? Are they mild? Or are they severe? Or are they worse and critical? So the goal of this episode after reviewing everything is that you will have the tools to be successful and you should be targeting your patients to come out of anesthesia or sedation at either normothermia or mild hypothermia. So 98 degrees Fahrenheit, that is my target and my goal for my patients coming out of anesthesia is I want them to be at least 98. If I can get them normal, that is my target. Um, but if they're mild, um, hypoth mildly hypothermic, that's okay too, because there are factors that we can control. There are factors that we really have no control um, over, uh, including the surgical field, right? If we have a patient that has uh, an abdominal and thoracic procedure, we've got a significant amount of their body exposed to the air that we can't provide additional heat support. It's going to be very hard for those patients for us to get them um, appropriately thermoregulated during anesthesia. But we should be trying and using interventions to our benefit so that we can get our patients out of anesthesia as normal as possible. The next thing I want to review is our types of heat losses. So we have four types. We have convective, conductive, evaporative, and radiation. Now convective heat losses refers to heat transferred from the body to the air, which is cooler than our body temperature. Uh, and uh, conductive heat losses is our heat transfer from the body to a cooler surface, such as an x-ray table or a cold metal table in the OR or a gurney. Those are going to be conductive heat losses. Evaporative heat losses occur when the heat um, is sort of removed from the body as moisture evaporates from either a wet surface area on the skin or in the respiratory tract. And then radiation is going to be heat exchanging from objects to objects in the environment. So if we have a cold, um, you know, piece of equipment nearby, we might have some radiation losses um, in that mechanism. So the heat loss overall is dependent on the amount of exposed surface area. So the less surface area we have exposed, the less we're going to have in terms of heat loss. So if we're doing a cruciate repair and we've got one limb of the patient exposed during anesthesia, it is going to be a lot easier for us to both maintain normothermia, rewarm our patients if they're cold, and reduce the um potential losses. Whereas, like I said, if we have a patient that's having both an abdominal and thoracic procedure and a good portion of their surface area is exposed to the procedure, I think our surgeons would murder us if we tried to get, get the temperature in the ORs to be normal, you know, for our patients. Um, so there's stuff we can control, stuff we can't control. And so the focus is going to be on ways that we can control our heat losses and uh, more importantly, heat support. Now, during anesthesia, um, the main causes of heat losses in our patient are going to be radiation and convective. So they're going to account for 80% of our patient's total heat loss. And of that 80%, 75 or 
three quarters of that is heat loss is going to be due to the body surface. So the body surface plays a big role in our heat loss. Um, and then 25% of that or a quarter of that uh, is going to be from the respiratory tract. Now, other factors that are going to impact heat loss would be the cooled inhalant agents as well as oxygen. So that's going to increase our respiratory, you know, evaporative losses. And then the cold metal tables, um, like I'd mentioned, are going to increase our conductive losses. All right, let's talk about anesthesia now. So anesthesia is going to affect normal thermoregulation in our patients, and it's going to be generally dose dependent. So the dose is really going to determine the significance of uh, our impact on thermoregulation. Now, some of the factors that are affected from anesthesia is going to be an alter um, in hypothalamic function, a reduction in our physiologic response, so our patient's inability to shiver when they're under general anesthesia, uh, an inhibition in a behavioral response, so our patients aren't going to be able to move to a warmer environment because they're anesthetized. We're going to have a reduction in our metabolic rate. We're going to have an increase in vasodilation. And then our surgical, st surgical sterile fields are going to impose further stress on thermoregulation. So during anesthesia, uh, we have heat losses can start following administration of any medication that will alter hypothalamic function, such as a sedative. So if we're pre-medicating our patients, we've already begun the process of losing heat uh, because we're, we're altering our hypothalamic function. Okay, so if our patients are in a cage on a cold table, we've given them a sedative, we're trying to relax them so we can get a catheter in them, we need to be thinking, are they going to have heat losses? And the answer is yes. Okay, the rate of heat loss, however, is greatest during the first 20 minutes following the induction of general anesthesia, and that is because of vasodilation. So it's going to cause a shift or a redistribution of our core body heat and circulation to the periphery. And then when we get an increase in circulation to the periphery, we're increasing the surface area. So we're going to have an increase in convective losses. Um, to the environment because our periphery is now getting all that heat to the paws and, you know, tail, etc. And we're going to have losses, maybe not so much the tail, but the, the paws are, are the ones that are farthest from the core body. Now, vasoconstriction um, is a response that's typically delayed because of general anesthesia. So if it does occur, it will also impact our perfusion and it'll decrease tissue perfusion. So vasoconstriction, while it's trying to help with uh, reducing additional heat losses, it's also going to um, decrease perfusion so it could impact our blood pressure. Um, vasoconstriction may not occur at all when using medications that lead to vasodilation, such as acepromazine or inhalant agents. Like I mentioned, shivering does not occur because of muscle relaxation secondary to general anesthesia. And then when we look at our body surface area to mass ratio, smaller patients have a greater um, value in body surface area to mass ratio. And so the higher the ratio, the greater the risk is for heat losses. And in one study, they looked at dogs and cats that laid, weighed less than 10 kilograms. And those that were not provided external heat support dropped over six degrees after one hour, hour of the anesthesia. And that's six degrees Fahrenheit. Environmental temperatures, sterile surgical fields, and duration of anesthesia will also impact the severity of hypothermia. And then drugs such as opioids and propofol will also lower the sh shivering threshold in our patients. 
So our heat losses can be broken down into three phases during general anesthesia. During the first hour, like I mentioned, peripheral vasodilation and redistribution of body heat is going to cause the first phase in heat loss. And that's going to be the most significant drop in degrees Fahrenheit um, uh, during a duration. So that first hour, you have the biggest drop. During hours one to three, you have a lower rate but continued loss of heat. And that is because our normal metabolism and heat productions are decreased from our anesthetic agents. And then hours three to four, we're sort of talking about at that point, we've reached our thermal steady state. Um, and so we have minimal additional losses at that point. Um, however, if we're not providing any additional heat support, we, um, you know, the first three hours, we could get our patients down to 92 degrees. And then we're talking about severe hypothermia, even though there's not additional losses, 92 degrees during anesthesia for Fahrenheit is, is not okay. And we're going to see some pretty significant adverse effects going into recovery. So the way in which we monitor temperature during anesthesia is we can either do a rectal temperature, which actually evaluates more of the peripheral body temperature than it does the core. So it may often underestimate the core body temperature. However, during anesthesia, if you have the ability to do an esophageal temperature, that's going to be much better at evaluating the core body temperature. It is the ideal mechanism for monitoring temperature during anesthesia since the vital organs, as I mentioned, are located in the core. So placing the esophageal probe to the location of the heart is recommended. All right, let's get into the adverse effects we see from hypothermia. Now there's a lot of information published regarding the adverse effects of hypothermia. So I want to kind of go over the key points that um, we refer to or think about when we're talking about um, hypothermia and severe hypothermia um, and kind of break it down by systems or, or, or concepts or topics. So for our heart, um, when we have severe hypothermia, so patients that um, have a temperature even less than 93.2 degrees Fahrenheit, so getting more towards the um, critical levels of hypothermia, uh, that can lead to myocardial sensitivity, so increased risk for arrhythmias, um, seeing some changes in cardiac rhythm, more specifically decreases in the SA node rate, so bradycardia, uh, decreases in cardiac output and blood pressure, and they may not be um, responsive to anticholinergics. So the goal of our anticholinergics, like glycopyrrolate or atropine, is to increase sympathetic tone, um, and when our patients are significantly hypothermic, we actually don't get the response that we want to from administering those anticholinergics. And then if you get temperatures less than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you'll see, you may see asystole or fibrillation, um, so cardiac arrest, which is not what we want for our patients. Um, in response to hypothermia, we see increased concentrations of norepinephrine secondary to the hypothermia. So those increases of uh, norepinephrine will increase vasoconstriction. And then the more vasoconstriction we see, we're actually, we'll see a decrease of volume um, back to the heart. So that's the preload. So decreases in preload are going to decrease our cardiac output. So we'll see a decrease in blood pressure as well. 
We'll see fluid shifts to the extravascular space. So that's going to lead to hemoconcentration um, and increased viscosity of the blood. So the blood becomes sludgy. It becomes thick. It's harder to perfuse. We'll see prolonged coagulation and altered platelet functions, which are going to increase our bleeding risks. In humans, hypothermic patients required more transfusion than patients that were normothermic. Our tissue perfusion will also decrease because we'll have a left shift of the oxygen hemoglobin um, curve. What that means is that, so the oxygen um, is bound to hemoglobin as it reaches the uh, tissue. Uh, when we have a left shift in our oxygen hemoglobin curve, we see the oxygen remain bound to hemoglobin. So we have a less oxygen offloading to the tissue. So the tissue are getting less perfusion, less oxygen, and this is going to cause them to have to increase their anaerobic metabolic processing. And one of the byproducts of anaerobic metabolism is lactic acid. And so we see an increase in lactic acid production, which will affect um, our pH and actually lead to a metabolic acidosis. And as our pH drops, we start to see um, the inability of certain medications to function or um, work appropriately. So uh, we want to maintain, you know, our normal acid base as much as possible um, as well. So increases of lactic acid, decreases of tissue perfusion, those are all um, adverse effects that we want to try and avoid uh, when we're looking at anesthesia. Hypothermia Thermia will also decrease normal hepatic and renal blood flow. Um, and decreases in metabolic function means that we see a decrease in hepatic breakdown of anesthetic agents. So that is delayed um, and that's going to lead to prolonged recovery times. Uh, solubility of inhalant agents will also increase during hypothermia. So that's going to lead to overdose if the anesthetic depth is not closely monitored. And we also see an increased risk of apnea and normal response to hypercapnia when um, and or hypoxia. So that function is impaired with um, increased uh, anesthetic depth. We also see an increased risk of postoperative wound infection because we have an impaired moon impaired immune function and poor peripheral perfusion. And those are both going to impair normal wound healing. Um, in humans, hypothermia increased infection rate threefold. And then our recovery time from anesthesia is delayed, uh, as I mentioned, specifically with the decrease in um, metabolic function and processing of those anesthetic agents. And then more specifically, as they start to come out of anesthesia, um, they're going to start shivering and the shivering is going to increase our oxygen demand. So we need to make sure that their respiratory drive isn't still depressed. And if it is, we need to provide oxygen supplementation because they're going to be at an increased risk for hypoxemia. So patients going into recovery that are still sedate, that are shivering, make sure you're monitoring their oxygen saturation um, with the pulse ox. And if they are low, you know, less than 96, 97% that you're providing oxygen supplementation until they're able to maintain normal saturation without the oxygen supplementation. So it's not just saying, oh, yep, good. They're at 100%. They stopped shivering. Let me remove the oxygen supplement source. You want to remove the oxygen supplement source and continue to monitor the oxygen saturation for at least five minutes and make sure it maintains or holds. 
And as we talked about in our first episode, um, using just uh, visualization of the mucous membranes as determining whether or not they need oxygen supplementation um, is not effective because when they turn blue and purple, they've already desaturated to the point where they're critical. Um, so now let's talk about um, ways that we can decrease our heat losses during anesthesia. So we can provide convective heat support. That should be the number one go-to for your patient because convective heat losses accounts for most of the heat loss during anesthesia. So we should be providing convective heat support. What is convective heat support? It is creating a warm bubble for our patients that is um, in contact with the greatest surface area that we can um, contact, right? So we can't provide convective heat support for an open abdomen because that would require turning the operating room temperatures up to a high number and our surgery peeps would uh, for sure say no thank you and probably pass out and wind up on the floor. So we cannot provide convective heat support to the open uh, exposed surgical fields, but we can provide that to every other surface area on our patient. So um, we can uh, provide a warm bubble of air around our draped area, okay? Um, radiation is the other one, so warming lamps. We have to be careful that those aren't too hot. They may be difficult to regulate. And we could say that our operating room lights can sometimes provide a little bit of radiation support to the open surgical field. So radiation is harder than convective for sure. So the bear huggers uh, are gonna be your number one friend when it comes to providing heat support during anesthesia and start those bear huggers right after you induce your patients. Because if you can have them laying on one of the bear hugger blankets and we can create that bubble while they're getting shaved, while they're getting additional lines placed during that first 20 minutes where we see that redistribution of heat, if we can provide the convective heat support, we are going to minimize our losses and we're gonna be ahead of the game when we get into the OR and have that brief moment of, of no heat support, you know, in terms of the convective heat support because we don't wanna circulate air around the surgical field before it's draped in and uh, out of um, um, exposure to airflow. Um, from the convective sources. So we don't want to provide the bear hug or have it turned on while we're trying to prepper, prepare the uh, surgical field. But once the patient is draped in and that surgical field is separate from the um, circulating air underneath the drape, go ahead, turn your convective heat supports on. I love the bear hugger blankets we have. They have two ports to them. So I actually have two bear hugger units in there at times, especially for my small patients or my patients that are older that are gonna need um, you know, that, that heat support and setting those temperatures to um, you know, the maximum amount that's allowed on those units. And those are all regulated by um, safety mechanisms to make sure that we're not overheating our patients or providing an air that is too um, too high or too hot and gonna increase the risk for thermal burns. So convective heat support is, is gold standard in, in my book. Now conductive um, heat support uh, is less effective because we are um, targeting, you know, like I said, the main losses is convective and radiation. So conductive heat support would be warm water blankets um, in place of cold metal tables. So we can certainly do that. So uh, we should be using the circulating water blankets that have that sort of honeycomb effect to them. Um, those are regulated and safe to use on our patients. 
we should, uh, the honeycomb effect allows for that warm water to shunt around areas of pressure. So when our patient is laying on it, we reduce the risk of thermal burns in those regions. Um, and then evaporative heat support would be our rebreathing circuits, uh, warm lavage on our exposed abdominal organs uh, periodically throughout the procedure um, is going to help to increase uh, our uh, body temperature, decrease our thermal losses. Uh, what we need to avoid, um, things that have been proven to increase risk of thermal burns are our heating pads. Uh, heating pads are not recommended, should not be used. I've seen significant complications from using heating pads. I've seen patients lose their life from heating pads uh, and hot water under metal tables, hot water bottles, bags put into their, um, you know, uh, inguinal area, um, putting convective hoses directly on the patients um, without having it, you know, go through the warming blanket uh, that actually redistributes that volume. So it's not a direct, you know, think of a, a hair dryer. You don't want to have a hair dryer blowing directly on one spot in your head. It burns. It hurts. You have to keep things moving. So um, really important that you are not using heating pads um, or uh, a hot metal surface that the patients uh, cannot move off of if they get too hot because they're anesthetized. So they're, we already know that we're reducing or inhibiting their ability to um, move away from those hot surfaces. And um, when you look at the perfusion to the area when a patient is laying on their side or on their back, the perfusion to their, um, to that area is, uh, shunted to some degree or not able to circulate because of the pressure. Um, and then you have the heat source there. Um, so you have blood that pools in that area from the pressure, and then you have this constant high heat you're gonna cause burns to that area. The benefit of the uh, warm water blankets or the warm water beds is because of that honeycomb effect, the areas that have high pressure where they're laying on them, it actually closes off those channels um, in that area from having um, the hot air, hot water circulate to that area. So it shunts that area and that will is how we're able to reduce the risk for thermal burns and why the warm water blankets um, warm water beds are recommended over heating pads. Um, so now we look into what do we do for um, using our heating devices, um, the convective heat device, radiation, you know, conductive evaporative. How do we utilize them with our patients? So pre-induction warming will prevent the redistribution of hypothermia, and that's the convective heat support. Um, I highly, highly recommend putting a warm water blanket on your induction table, putting um, even a bear hugger if you have a patient that's going to have a prolonged, I mean, even if it takes five minutes to prep your patient and get them into the OR, if you could give them those five minutes of additional heat support, you're going to reduce the um, heat loss that you see in that first 20 minutes of, of induction, following induction of anesthesia. Uh, if we can reduce our anesthesia time, that's another way in which we can um, improve our body temperature. Uh, when it comes to the surgical preparation with the cold solutions such as alcohol, if we can avoid them, um, 
if possible. It is not always possible to avoid them. Uh, so in those instances, for example, in my hospital, if we have a delay from our patient being prepped and ready to go into the OR before we apply those cold solutions to our patient, if there is a delay in the room turnover and getting our next patient, you know, getting our patient into the operating room, we're uh, just holding off on those cold solutions until we're like ready to roll into the OR. So we're doing our dirty prep, rolling into the OR, doing our prep, uh, you know, sterile prep with our solutions, five minute contact time for chlorhexidine, and then we're getting our patients draped in and then we're getting our heat support started. So we're trying to minimize the time and focus on uh, when we start the prep, uh, we're seeing it through until they're draped in and then um, getting those heat supports started. The circulating uh, warm water blankets and forced convective warming devices are our number one and number two go-tos in the operating room. So our tables have the circulating water blankets um, for their backs or sides that they're laying on. And then our warming blankets, we actually have them laying on that as well. Um, and it circulates air around the outside of them um, and creates a nice nice warm bubble for them. And uh, these blankets have actually been chosen to reduce convective and radiation losses up to 30%. You could also consider IV fluid warmers. Um, that is something that will help with maybe some of the conductive losses. Um, but uh, that shouldn't be the only go-to that you have. If you need to supplement that in, that's fine. Make sure you're using something that's regulating the temperature of the IV fluid going into the patient so that it's not too hot. Um, and like I said, do not use electric heating pads. They have been time and time again shown to increase risk for thermal born burns, and that does increase our mortality risk. So the take home from this episode, prevention is far more effective and easier than treatment when it comes to managing hypothermia. Start the heat support right away. It'll offset your losses that you see during the first 20 minutes. Monitor your temperature throughout the process. We wanna make sure we avoid overcorrection of hypothermia. We wanna avoid heating pads, warm saline bags, bottles, etc. as these are increased risk for thermal burns. Um, we wanna monitor our pulse oximetry in patients that are shivering during during recovery and provide supplemental oxygen as needed. And that is that. Thank you so much for joining along. Now we're going to get to our next part in our episode where we talk about our CARES action. Okay, friends. So this episode's CARES action challenge is going to be to perform an anonymous random act of kindness. And what I mean by that is doing something nice for someone to positively impact their day without the expectation that they will know it was you or to expect them to say thanks in return. And so Frank A. Clark quoted that real generosity is doing something nice for someone who will never find out. So that's my challenge to all of us in the coming weeks. Thanks again for listening into this episode. I hope that you had some information you could take away from the episode. I'd love to hear from you, get feedback on future episodes, on other things that I could do to improve this podcast. You can reach me, connect with me on social media platforms at CaresVetMed. You can email CaresVetMed at gmail.com and you can find these podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Thanks again for joining in. Take care, friends.